This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I'm joined by Terry Menard. Hello, hello. I can't wait to talk about this movie, to be perfectly honest, because um, <laughs> it's weird when you start watching a film or a filmography of someone and you start from the very beginning mm-hmm. and you start to see the way they maybe iterate on on themselves a bit. Yeah. And so I'm, <laughs> I, I think I've said this every episode, but I'm really glad we're doing this because it's, I don't know, it's interesting to me to see these two directors start to come into their own, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, folks, we are up to our second David Cronenberg film. We're talking about 1977's Rabid. And you're spot on, Terry. Like, it's really interesting to watch these chronologically because Rabid literally feels like, okay, I learned some lessons doing shivers. And now I'm going to try it kind of again, but also just a touch different. The other thing that I was that I really kind of honed in on while I was watching this is the way in which Shivers felt like his take on, you know, a zombie kind of story and mythos. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one, I mean, I've heard people call the infected people in this zombies, but it feels more like a vampirism story. It does. Yes. And a, a take on what vampires would be in like a more technological virus mindset than necessarily a supernatural one, which I think is sort of like a trend we are seeing in Cronenberg's work. I don't know if that continues, but I, I there's like a lack of supernatural, a lack of anything religious in his mm-hmm. film, in these two, two films at least, and more on the, the technological and the, the scientific side as he explores different, at least so far, mythos through that sort of vein. And it's it's mm-hmm. interesting to me to see that. Yeah, you're definitely honing in on the right elements because Cronenberg is very much obsessed with science and like science gone wrong. And often, especially in these early films, the male figures who are kind of working behind the mask with the scalpel, who are playing God inadvertently or otherwise, and they end up creating these kinds of monsters. Shivers felt like a, it was definitely a commentary on men who play God and Mm. they inadvertently unleash something. Whereas this doesn't feel quite as nefarious, but it's still, we need to be careful about the advent of modern technology. But then this is extrapolated in my mind to focus in on how security protocols and like the way that governments and officials like lawmakers, uh, CDC officials who how those people can immediately fall apart in a crisis because they're so certain that whatever they're facing, they already know what to do. Like, no, it's rabies, Terry. We just have to give people shots. No, it's a new strain of rabies. They don't seem to be reacting as well. Oh, my God, call in the armed forces you know, declare a military emergency. We need to shut down the whole city because we fucked up. Yeah. So watching this uh, in the year 2022, not while while we've been going through a pandemic, it kind of part of it made me a little laugh a little bit because the way that uh, this government and I don't know if this is just Canada vice America, but the way the government sort of snaps to it, yes, they fail miserably. Mm-hmm. But the way that they immediately with it, like it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a lot of time has has transpired no. <laughs> since she's waking up from her from her coma because we get that month long jump. But other than that, it feels like it's it's rather a short term and the mm-hmm. amount of time it, or lack of time it takes for the the government to declare martial law. And lock everything down <laughs> is um, surprisingly quick, considering the pandemic we just went through. <laughs> right? It's admirable. If only we had seen this kind of reaction, like this quick response in real life. And um, so I, I joked on Twitter that I thought I had had a conversation about this title before. And I did do a really brief guest spot on the Spencers of Horror talking about this film com- in comparison to the Soska Sisters remake, which 
if you haven't checked out, it is very interesting to compare and contrast the two takes because it's like obviously female directors versus male director, the advent of like 40 something years, but also they take this in a completely different direction, which I don't think is actually better. But um, yeah, I wrote a piece for Bloody on this film. Terry, I shit you not. <laughs> April 1st, 2020. Oh my god. <laughs> and it, it was basically like, this is a difficult and weird watch in this day and age. And it's like, oh, just boy, you wait. You didn't know. <laughs> just you wait, Joe. <laughs> I think at that time, um, I I had been told to work from home for uh two weeks. It would have been mm-hmm. probably about two weeks from yep. that the first of first of April, you said? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Imagine 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 going back and like rewriting that article now (laughs) yeah i mean i i think a lot of the arguments that i make still stand but you're right it is interesting to watch how quickly these government officials do move into action of course what we're seeing is that shift from kind of like medical response where we think we can help people and that at a certain point in the film we kind of tip the the dial or the scale over and all of a sudden it's you know what shoot anything that looks threatening and it's it's very much a condemnation on how we handle these kinds of outbreaks how how fear and scares start to overtake the population right like i think one of the things i like the most about this film like i i don't love this movie as much as i love shivers but i do love how in this movie we've taken it out of the safety of a contained island as a contained condo building and we've moved it into a metropolis where it's like you can't even go to the mall because you might see santa get shot <laughs> oh my god that moment oh with the to- <laughs> i think quite- it was like a t- tommy gun i was like holy shit control yourself dude but <laughs> oh no <laughs> it, I, i'm glad you brought this up because that was the one thing like i i actually i think i'm i'm in the same uh, camp as you i don't like this one as much as i enjoyed shivers for a number mm-hmm. of reasons but yeah. one of the things i do think it does incredibly well is take that next step where he had like a self-contained story in shivers of an, uh, this metro metropolitan like apartment building and Mm -hmm. then he takes that to the next logical step of a whole city being overrun by some disease and i think that there's a lot of really cool background things happening with using news reports where it's it grounds the story in a in in a very self-contained way but there's a lot of news reports there's a lot of things that people drive by there's a Mm -hmm. lot of visual storytelling the there's a moment where they're stopped it at a stoplight and there is just military people moving on a bunch of dump trucks that have a lot of hazmat gear and you realize oh they're Mm -hmm. cleaning up the bodies yeah and it's like just these moments of visual storytelling that are so like subtle they don't necessarily like scream it from the roof as to what they're doing but there's Mm -hmm. just just these little tiny moments that are like oh this is really kind of creepy and telling an interesting kind of background story to like a macro story to the micro one that we're experiencing yeah yeah no that that's absolutely correct and it kind of harkens back to what you were saying where it doesn't feel like this film takes place over a lengthy period of time like you get the impression it's maybe a week after she wakes up because when she starts infecting people it just dominoes right like Mm -hmm. you know one person becomes a couple and then all of a sudden we're on a crowded subway and it's all out pandemonium and i love how you're right the movie uses visual imagery to not tell us a sense of time but very much to give us a okay this is how far we've come right because initially it just seems like well okay that farmer guy is out of commission that girl in the pool the doctor at the clinic and then you start to realize oh now that she's infected that the long distance truck driver and then he's attacking his coworkers. you you very much get the impression that this is now just like a cascading wave and we're not always seeing it, but then it intersects with characters that we're seeing in completely new ways. Like that woman on the subway, we've never met her before. So that tells us, oh, this has been happening off screen to a bunch of other characters and now it's just happening to come back because it's so pervasive. Like they can't get away from these infected people anymore. Absolutely. I was thinking as I was watching this, this is a really... 
a really good way of sort of visualizing how an epidemic spreads mm-hmm. because it's just like contact. You know, yes, there's a little bit more violence involved in this movie because she's attacking them with her. Well, we'll get into that a little, a little bit. Uh, yes, but, we will. <laughs> but uh, it, there's like the, the contact, and then you see that person going to the the depot where the where he works, and then he attacks his his boss, and mm-hmm. so you start to see see the way that a virus or a disease can quickly spread from person to person, and it's it, it's kind of terrifying in a way that doesn't really lend itself to actually feel like it's terrifying. But when you start to like actually break it down and think about it, Mm -hmm. you start to see like how COVID happened, right? Yep. Yeah. And you're right. It does sneak up on you. And I think that's by virtue of the way that Cronenberg has written the story and how he's shooting it. There's that slow anticipation of dread, but because it's not contained, like in Shivers, we're not feeling like, oh my God, this is quickly spiraling out of control. It still kind of feels like isolated incidents. Like, I think that's one of the things that I struggle with a little bit narratively in this film is that it doesn't really feel like it has characters. Like Rose is a character, but also she doesn't have a lot of interiority because when we meet her, she's on the back of a motorcycle and then a month later she's in a coma and then she's attacking people. And it's not always clear how much control she has over her urges. So is this Rose or is this the phallic proboscis thing that she's using to vampirically suck blood from victims? So it it's almost hard to latch on to people, but the result instead is that it's not character driven. It's more of like we are witnesses to this slow motion car crash and things like the hazard trucks and uh, the news reports and that kind of stuff are those fascinating macro pictures where you're just like, oh, I'm really feeling everything closing in. So even if we don't have characters to relate to, I feel like we as viewers are are the ones who are having to go through this instead because we don't have an audience proxy. Like it's us who has to go through it. So what you're saying is resonating with me because as I was watching this movie, um, I'm going to be perfectly honest. There were Mm -hmm. points where I was a little bored. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And there was like a detachment here where I was watching this unfold and I was like, Ooh, some of this that's happening is really interesting Mm -hmm. and it should be scary to me, but I'm not feeling it's I'm just feeling not there. Right. I'm feeling very detached to it. And I was I was trying to parse why I was feeling this way. And I think it's two things. I think one is that this feels very more clinical to me. Yeah. There's like a detachment from from Cronenberg in this film that it just it feels like things are happening, but there there's like a I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it feels very well, clinical in that in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I'm not and I'm I'm not building fear. But then as you were talking, I realized, oh, the other part is to it is because I don't feel like these are actually really developed characters. Right. Yeah. Like you're not invested emotionally no. in their journey. I feel like the the only part that I legitimately care about these people, because I don't care about Rose all that much. I definitely don't care about her boyfriend, who is like not a character. He's just the guy who goes along and keeps discovering horrible shit happening. You're like, all right, that's fine. The scene that I care the most about is when she gets back to Montreal finally and she stays with her friend Mindy. Mindy. Mm -hmm. And Mindy, a vaguely lesbian implications in this relationship absolutely but like mindy so desperately wants to take care of rose she wants to protect her she wants to put her in the bath but that's a whole other story (laughs) but there's this moment where rose is like i need to leave because you can tell that she's she is aware of what she's doing but she doesn't understand the implications of it like she thinks she's attacking people she doesn't realize she's caused a fucking pandemic (laughs) and she knows she needs to go after people but she's gone after predatory people in the clinic she's gone after predatory farmers she's gone after predatory dudes in the dirty movie theater so she very much has that kind of like feminist agenda where she's going after bad dudes but she knows she needs to feed and the only person here is mindy and mindy will not let her leave and i i i feel so bad for mindy because she just wants to be a good lesbian or maybe bisexual friend and instead she gets the armpit that there's that scene where 
Mindy is like on the on the other side of the bathroom door, and we mm-hmm. see. Oh, it's so good. I love that shot. Huh? It's it's so good. Rose is is writhing on the floor. She's mm-hmm. obviously needing to feed. She's hurting. She yep. her body is saying, "You must, you must give me blood." And she is just trying to get Mindy to leave. And Mindy is on the other side of the door, and all she wants to to do is have like a conversation with her and have her tell her good luck on her, you know, her day. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like. Oh, Mindy. Like, Mindy's in a rom-com. She doesn't realize that she's in a (laughs) zombie vampire outbreak movie. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's a perfect way of explaining it. Because she is. She she doesn't realize any of this is going on. And I... I, there's there's a funny thing where we have like Hart calls her early and says you know don't let her leave you must keep mm-hmm. her there and yet Mindy is just it feels so completely oblivious to everything that is going on and I just oh, I love her right <laughs> she's giving uh, Andrea Martin vibes because of course yes. this is sort of the same period as Black Christmas it's just a couple years later set in the same sort of well this is Montreal. Black Christmas is Toronto, but it's very much like this movie looks to me very Canadian, not explicitly low budget, but obviously it's not, you know, the shiny glossiness of a Hollywood production. Right. So there's there's something about how down to earth all of these characters are, with the exception, of course, of Marilyn Chambers, who looks like fucking sex on wheels. Oh, my which God. She technically is. <laughs> When she is introduced and she is straddling that motorcycle and Mm -hmm. the wind is blowing in her hair, I was like, holy shit, is she gorgeous. (laughs) Like, I am like so gay, but I'm like, good Lord, this woman Mm -hmm. is fucking hot. Oh, yeah. I mean, she looks like 90% of this movie, she could be filming some kind of hair commercial, right? Seriously. And I didn't even realize I, I should have known. I didn't even know that Marilyn Chambers like was known for, for porn. I didn't mm-hmm. know that that was a, a thing. Yeah, it, it's one of those fun things. So I don't know how much you remember because we're recording these sporadically when we can. <laughs> but uh, in Shivers, I mentioned that Cronenberg got in a lot of trouble for the sort of sensational sex angle Mm. of that Mm -hmm. film to the point where it was publicly debated in parliament right and this film did not get that kind of treatment but it does in a way almost feel like cronenberg giving commentary back like oh well you think that i'm being too smutty too sensational too genre based you know i'm using taxpayer dollars to fund grosso shit well here i'm gonna do it all over again only i'm going to cast possibly the most famous porn actress in the world (laughs) fuck you (laughs) so when i was doing some some research for rabid uh i was trying to find some article like an interview or some kind of discussion and i couldn't find a whole lot but Mm -hmm. i did find this article from threebrotherscom they're comparing rabid and shiver and shivers and saying that uh Rabbit deviates by placing the woman in a sexually aggressive role at times. Right. And Cronenberg notes that his previous film had been accused of showing women as sexual victims, while Rabbit was criticized for making female sexuality predatory. And so sure. they had a quote of him reflecting on the experience. And I think it's from a book. I couldn't quite find the book, but I think it is from some book in which they interview Cronenberg. But he says... It's fitting that a horror film should be attacked or defended by various feminist groups. It makes a lot of sense to me. In a way, it pleased me, and still does, not to be seen as adhering to anyone's party line. That suits me temperamentally. I thought I was suitably nasty to everybody at one point or another in (laughs) Rabid. Male, female, homosexual, child, everybody gets it. If you're going to accuse me of something, you might as well accuse me of being misanthropic. (laughs) I don't feel I'm that either. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, I love to describe him as Canada's enfant terrible, just because, especially in these early couple of films, he truly was making films for himself. He did not care how much he upset people. But I just I still think it's so ridiculous that people wanted to decry the kinds of films he was making as though he was perverse or sleazy Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. a Canadian Roger Corman, because he is honestly one of the most erudite people I have ever had the pleasure of reading and or listening to. Like, Cronenberg knows exactly what he's doing at all times. Like, he is mischievous, but he's not like some basement dweller, degrade film producer. (laughs) 
Right. This isn't humanoids from the deep. This isn't. No. It, it's. <laughs> and also, there's nothing wrong with that, even if it no, was. Absolutely not. But but it's like I I do think it's it's interesting the way that uh this this man I I mentioned I'm I'm very interested to see how this man's career has has evolved from being these very socially lurid type mm -hmm. of of content that people um are as you said debating in parliament to the kind of almost mythical person we see now where like right. he just he's Cronenberg. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, I, I just find it so fascinating to see these movies and see all of the discussion and all of the like, whoo, -hoo, tits, tit titillating discussion about the fact right. that this man is, is making movies about sex right. in a very like violent way and seeing, I don't know, just seeing the way that that conversation has evolved over time is so fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I almost think it's hard to remember when this movie is coming out, right? Like, so I mentioned that Canada doesn't have a strong feature filmmaking industry at this point. Like, we were making them, but they weren't often genre films. So he's still like one of the few people in that game. But even like, this is 1977. This is the year before Halloween. Yeah. This is the year before Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. So like, we still aren't even in that kind of period where our now classic kind of 80s directors had delivered their biggest hits. And that's... Like, obviously, Romero had already done Night of the Living Dead. But, you know, I I think that this has an interesting comparison point to Dawn of the Dead, which has, like, explicit political commentary, but is really about the downfall of society through, like, a large metropolitan lens, right? Like, that movie literally starts with all of these different communities being uh, attacked and having to have like the armed forces come in and it goes very badly and everybody has to get out of town. And this is kind of the same story, only it's a small version on a Canadian budget. Absolutely. I don't have anything more intelligent to say about that. <laughs> that is, it's a, uh, I'm just, I'm thinking back of that, that time period, the seventies mm -hmm. in terms of the, the, the films that are coming out at that point And man, just the mm -hmm. just the social con commentary that is happening in the seventies, all, all across the world, I, I would assume. But like particularly looking at like North American uh, cinematography and and filmography, and just mm -hmm. yeah, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. This came out like a a year before. Yeah, because it's seventy eight is yeah. Dawn of the Dead. Wow. So one other piece of uh, this is going to be a bit more of a fun factoid for you, Terry. But um, speaking of political commentary, uh, one of the interesting things that Americans may not know is that this film is actually doing commentary on real life events that happened in Montreal, in oh. Quebec, about seven years before this. So Canada is relatively peaceful. We don't do a lot of things with guns. We, uh, you know, we've had a couple of school shootings and that kind of stuff. But it's a it's a rare occurrence, mm -hmm. right? Like we're mm -hmm. mostly known as a peaceful slash peacekeeping country. Yep. We have one very dark incident that happened. Uh, it's called the October Crisis or the FLQ Crisis. It took place in October of 1970. So it would have been seven years before this. But it happened in Montreal, and it's the only time that we've had a significant domestic terrorism oh. uh, plot, essentially. So there was a group of a terrorist organization called Front de Libération du Québec, or FLQ, and they kidnapped the provincial labor minister, Pierre Laporte, as well as British diplomat James Cross, and the former was eventually murdered and the oh. latter was released following negotiations. But basically, this was done in an act of attempted sovereignty. So this terrorist group believed that Quebec should be independent. It's been an ongoing issue in Canada for as long as we have been a country. Basically, Quebec considers themselves distinct, both culturally and linguistically. Oh. And people have always argued for sovereignty. They believe that they should have different political systems they should have their own money they should be separate in all of those ways like uh, we've had referendums multiple times they've almost succeeded it's yeah it's a sticking point um in canada so this group basically did this because they wanted to make the argument that quebec should be free and it happened in montreal so there was 
this kidnapping, this eventual murder. And what ended up happening was our prime minister, aka the Canadian president, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, so Justin Trudeau's father, he ended up invoking the War Measures Act. And this is the oh. only time in Canadian history it has ever been invoked during peacetime. The one and only time in our entire history. Holy shit. So uh, in so doing, what happened was everyone had limited civil liberties, and it granted the police far-reaching powers, which allowed them to arrest and detain anyone they suspected was associated with this FLQ movement. And it also moved Canadian military forces so that they were deployed throughout Quebec and even guarding Parliament in Ottawa. So the reason that I bring this up, the reason that I'm giving you this, like, why the fuck are you telling me a history lesson from Canada, is because when in rabid we see the military move in and they're able to stop and shoot people this is direct commentary on the flq crisis wow yeah I, and it's really weird because a bunch of people like don't know it because of no. course we're talking about a different country and a lot of the time even in like reviews it doesn't come up because people aren't aware of that because it's like it's far removed enough that it's not like this happened last year it happened seven years before that that's that's wild that's mm -hmm. i'm like I'm, I'm i'm over at the october crisis uh wikipedia page and i'm just like how 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 did people not know about that like i mm -hmm. i've never heard of this before joe no it's honestly it's not even a popular thing in canada you could ask a bunch of people and i think if they hadn't really lived through it they wouldn't know but you can go back and see like there's pictures of armed military people just standing on street corners which in maybe other countries isn't as much of a big deal but here in canada like we just don't see guns on the regular so it was a really wild time and like canadians at the time were in support of it because a most canadians don't agree with quebec sovereignty and they they're kind of like you know what know your place fall in line you're part of canada just accept it like there's a an intolerance for quebec sovereignty but at the time, it was also like, this is a fucking terrorist situation. You need to get in there and do something. But it has left a really dark stain on Canadian history to the point where, like, there are people in Quebec even a couple of years ago who have said Justin Trudeau needs to apologize for his father's actions and the legacy of what he did. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. Like, I'm looking at this this picture that's on the Wikipedia page of a uh, helicopter on some street in downtown Montreal and there's a, a person with a, a military guy with a gun and there's just mm -hmm. this little kid walking by. Yep. What a, that's a stark photograph right there. It really is. Yeah. We don't wow. ever see stuff like that here. Never. Wow. So like watching, watching rabid through that lens just makes it all the kind of more impactful because it works within the world of the film. Like it makes logistical sense, but also even I found this interesting um, article by Meredith Cole called don't let anyone bite you close up on David Cronenberg's rabid for movie. And she talks about how like there's a moment where we see a British representative of the world health organization, this Dr. Gentry, which like hilarious name when you think about <laughs> it. Um, right. He's the one who ends up recommending martial law. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's an Anglo character who is advocating for like this martial law crackdown on French people. You're like, or <laughs> that's that's interesting too because um they one of the early medical people we are introduced to is Claude Lapointe. And mm -hmm. he is very clearly he has like a, a French Canadian accent. Yeah. And he obviously can speak French. And so it's interesting to see that is like our intro point to the medical response. Mm -hmm. And then to see the more Anglo person is basically saying uh, people that are affected are going to die. So you might as well just kill them. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I love that shift too. Like, I think it really anticipates and even foreshadows, like you mentioned the hazmat track that we see kind of mm -hmm. going through and I'll confess the end of this movie gets me every time. I always yeah. forget that that's what happens to Rose, but it's such a strikingly vivid image. Not that you see that she's been forgotten and she's being eaten by a, a rabid dog, but rather when you see her body get picked up and just tossed into the back of what appears to be a dump truck, like these people are not people anymore. They're just trash. 
Yeah, it is very evocative of uh, Night of the Living Dead, to be honest, yes. like the way that movie ends, where mm-hmm. they just are dragging the bodies and tossing them on a pyre. Like yeah. it definitely there's a there's an absolute callback to to that kind of nihilistic ending. And mm-hmm. in this one, it's in a way it's even more sinister because that's a person that is the person that they probably could get some antivirus from or, you know, right. <laughs> her blood could be used potentially to create some kind of savior for this this disease that I, I mean, we don't know, is it going to continue to pass? I don't know how, mm-hmm. it, how it works. We don't really get to see the, the ins and out of it. But if it continues, they just destroyed the one thing that could potentially save them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting, right? Because we have two back to back Cronenberg films now that have these kind of grim nihilistic endings, mm-hmm. but there's something wild and I don't know. I I don't want to be that kind of grim, dark person who cheers at the end of Shivers, but it's such an audacious ending, right? Like, yeah. ooh, we know that something terrible is going to happen. And then you get to see that play out in Rabbit, and it just feels so defeating. Like, oh, I'm not excited by all the chaos of all of these people in this big city getting eaten. It's such a, a dour, downer ending. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean... I- I, I think I think you're onto something because I I there's a sense of triumphantness at the end of Shivers, mm-hmm. yeah. Where yeah. <laughs> I I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is like <laughs> the disease is is like going to travel and is going to infect the world, but also like the way it's it's described is sort of being like sexually liberated and free. Mm-hmm. There's like a sense of it's sense like of a triumph. sense of community or society, yeah. right? Like, you know what? If the world has to fall, at least they're all going to be sexually liberated and just kind of uninhibited. It'll end with an orgasm. What's wrong right? with that? Whereas here, it's like, no, we're we're dumping this this body into a dumpster and mm-hmm. watching the dumpster crush the body. Like, we don't see Ooh. the body get crushed, but just the... Yeah. We don't need to. The image no. of the, the machine just getting to work, you know what is happening to poor Rose's body is just... Mm-hmm. It's horrifying. And the credits just start rolling as this is happening. I'm like, this is this is a different kind of audacious ending. (laughs) So much so. Yeah, I love that. It's, you know, she has barely been crushed. And those credits are rolling like Cronenberg saying, well, you got what you wanted. Get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) But Terry, we have not talked about this appendage. Yes. Or the um, gosh. The anus that forms under her armpit. Okay, I, I was I was very curious to see which term you were going to pick because some people feel that this is a vaginal slit with a proboscis that comes out of it, which is like that almost like intermingling of sexes, right? Yeah. But then a lot of people do, yes, call this the armpit butthole. Yeah, I I wasn't quite sure what I I think there's a lot of things going on in this mm-hmm. in this uh wound because it definitely looks like a slit like I could see the vaginal comparison. Mm-hmm. It looks like a a really beat up butthole as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's seen some action. <laughs> it's seen some action. And so I I there's there's a lot there's a lot going on in that in that in the very brief shots that we see of that wound shall we say <laughs> i think what i like is that unlike the people that rose infects who become quote-unquote like more traditional zombie-like figures right like they're just mm-hmm. attacking people they're often going for the next very common imagery when we see rose attack her victims and i think this is one of the reasons that people ended up getting really upset is because it's this very recognizable adult film actress So we're already uncomfortable with that because Puritans, right? Whenever she attacks people, it looks like an embrace, right? Mm -hmm. It's sexual, but it's also caring and intimate. And then it stings and suddenly there's blood and suddenly people are screaming. And I think that's a very uncomfortable territory for people. Yeah, because I was I was thinking, I was thinking about the first time that she attacks someone and it's it's Lloyd as he is, you know, he hears her screaming. He's just a patient at this clinic. Right. He goes in, he sees her up. Um, she's writhing in the bed. He's trying to be a good person. Like mm-hmm. he even, I, I, th- I thought it was interesting that he even comments at one point, well, this is really kind of weird because he feels awkward because yes. she's shirtless. <laughs> she's <topless>. Yeah. <laughs> and 
she's like wanting to be hugged and stuff. And he's like, this is I, this is making me uncomfortable. Don't you love that moment? You're just like, oh, my God, you're a real person. Even right. though he's not a character at all. No, but it, it's it's the one. It's like one of the very few deaths in this movie where the person doesn't quite deserve it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like, him and Mindy him, in yeah. my feelings. Yeah. And the per- well, and the, and the nurse in the, the pool. Uh, oh, the, fair. Mm-hmm. The hot yeah. tub. But it's like this this moment of, you know, she's like, oh, you're, you're so warm. It feels so good. And you can you can kind of feel that, you know, she's been in a coma for a month. Mm-hmm. She probably is cold. Now she's shirtless right. in this in this hospital. Like it's this kind of, oh, I just want to be touched and held. But then mm-hmm. the blood starts pouring down his side. Yeah. And it just it's such a great image. It is. And it's great because Cronenberg knows to withhold what she's actually doing so we just have to watch them hug and then suddenly we see the blood running down his arm so we know he's being attacked but we don't know by what and it's just like "Mm, you're making us wait for it like this movie is sexy but Mm -hmm. it's sexy gross whereas i think shivers was kind of sexy hot at times yeah yeah i don't know i i also my favorite scene is when she goes to the dirty movie theater and like to me, this is very much like women's liberation, second wave feminism. This dude tries to apologize like he didn't shove his Ugh. crotch in the back of her head. And then he tries to play nice. So I love the fact that she not only gets him, but then we just leave him like he's this dirty corpse who's just littering the movie theater now. I that's That sequence as a whole, I really enjoyed. I love that... She she tells him, I really like seeing these movies, but men always bother me. Mm-hmm. And his response was like, well, if I sit next to you, everyone will think that we're together and leave you Ugh. in peace. Of course, that's not that is not his intention whatsoever. But I love this because this also kind of introduces this this theme of like this woman is constantly being <laughs> preyed upon by yes. gross men. We had the mm-hmm. farmer who come, finds her drunk and then wants to sexually assault her. We have this guy that just wants to cop a feel. And mm-hmm. she's like, I just want to watch this movie. And right. then we have like, it, it just, it's a continues throughout the entire film of these moments of these men just trying to put themselves on her and see her for being the sex object vice being a real person. And then she, mm-hmm uses a phallic imagery to pierce them instead. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so good. Yeah, but like Cronenberg isn't so on the nose that he's saying every man is terrible. Like you said, Lloyd is actually just trying to help her. And arguably even the truck driver guy, like Mm -hmm. he's very concerned when she tries to eat something solid that is not blood, which is what her body wants. And then she has to vomit outside. So it's, I think it's actually a fair view of like gender politics because some dudes are bad and some dudes are good and at the end of the day rose just isn't always in control like if we if you look at this as a kind of parable on sexual urges she's making some good choices she's making some bad choices but at the end of the day like i do think the film almost revels in the deaths of the people who are bad like the people Mm -hmm. who are bad seem to get it worse for for sure because like i you know i was thinking about the the truck driver who was being kind you know and it's it's it was a nice inversion of that sort of trope we see where it's like Mm -hmm. oh the truck driver picks them up they're they're going to expect sex like that exactly yeah that is what cinema tells us truck drivers do Mm -hmm. and here's this man who offers her half a sandwich she obviously vomits. He's trying to take care of her. He pulls over to the side. Like, it, he's kind. Mm-hmm. So there is, there are moments of that where it's like, it's not trying to, I don't know. I, I think it present, presents a more complicated view of, of gender politics and sexuality. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I've, I've got one other thing from Meredith Cole that I want to bring in because it kind of nicely encapsulates some of this that we've been talking about. So, um, she obviously makes a bit of a deal about the fact that we are seeing this phallic object coming out of the armpit. And she, I think, amusingly takes it one step further by saying, you know, like, the armpit is the underbelly of society, right? Like we call the Mm. underbelly of society as the armpit of society. And we're seeing that on screen represented in these kind of seedy places, right? Like we start at this Calloid clinic, which PS is actually the home base of Lipton tea. That's where Cronenberg shot it, which I thought was hilarious. Oh, <laughs> But the rest of the movie really does take place kind of in 
not desolate, but like not pretty urban places. Like we're on highways, we're on city streets, we're um, in the dirty movie theater and so on. And I think it's fun that the movie is kind of doing this almost visual play on the language, like the underbelly of society, the armpit of society. It's all these places. But then we also get these scenes where it's like, We've got the father with the newborn who was like the nicest dude ever. He just drives hard around throughout all of this movie. And like, he's got this perfectly nice domestic abode with like a new baby and a wife who murders him. So it's, it's fun to me that the movie is making that kind of social commentary. Not all men are bad. Not all are good. And also like no safe spaces exist. Like, you can go to the Kelloid Clinic and you can still die in a hot tub. You can go to the dirty movie theater and you can still die. You can go to see Santa in the mall and you can still die. Like You can go home to visit your poor baby that has been murdered and mm-hmm. you're still going to die. Yeah. I just think it, it's an interesting piece because so often... Like, I'm, I'm taken with where movies are set, particularly in Cronenberg's case, right, where he's very deliberately chosen in that first film, an isolated condominium. Like, he wants to explore what power and privilege and isolation look like. And then he's opening that world up in this movie to encase a whole city. So which areas does he choose to focus on, right? It's subways and truck drivers and movie theaters and that kind of stuff, like, it's it's really urban spaces and yeah. i think it'd be easy for people to say like oh well that's why you don't move to the big city but the fact is is all of this also starts at a very high end medical clinic like mm-hmm. i don't know there's something interesting to be said about all of this yeah and i mean the second the second attack in the movie is in a rural area it's a farm mm-hmm. i you know it's so i i don't think that this is just city bad i think that it's it's showing as you kind of have suggested, showing different abodes, different places. Yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of places where people are going to intermingle because I think that that kind of ties into the idea of the the spreadability of this of this virus. Right. But there's a lot of there's a lot of small either rural areas or home suburban areas. Like it, it's it's showing more of a holistic, I would say, view of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you factor in the idea that like a pandemic is all encompassing, like. There is nowhere to hide. And in some ways, that makes it scarier, right? You can't mm-hmm. lock yourself up in the farm. You can't lock yourself up in your in your apartment. Things will find a way to get to you. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that has just been like tickling in the back of my, my mind as I started watching this, and it's probably because on uh, my on Scarred for Life, I have watched a lot of religious horror f- films, it mm-hmm. seems like recently. Mm-hmm. In particular, um, this time period in the 70s is very fraught with a lot of yes. apocalyptic type Christianity, evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. There's like, I, there's a, you can draw a distinct line from the kind of things that are being taught in the 70s with the way that um, a certain subsect of people were anti-vaxxers when mm-hmm. it comes to, to COVID with the idea that they're going to be injected with the mark of the beast. Oh God, yes, of course. And so, like that is that is a whole thing that that has stopped a bunch of people from ever wanting to get any vaccines, from wanting mm-hmm. to have like chips or anything that could potentially mark them with the with the number of the beast God. in their body. And so, I'm watching this, and one of the things that a lot of end times messaging is about is that when the Antichrist is here, they're going to have to mark people. With this mark of the beast, which again could be transmitted in a vaccine, and they have to ID themselves. And so there's a, there's a striking image in this movie where as they're trying to, they've decided that if someone gets a vaccine before mm-hmm. being infected, that they will be safe, and they must have the vaccine that they must carry their vaccination cards with them, uh-huh. and they have to be ID'd. And there is some definite like end of the world religious imagery in this line that is that I, I feel like he is mischievously playing with the sort of religious end time that we are seeing in the seventies and that sort of um, that uprising of evangelicalism in here. And I don't know if that's, if that's just me trying to put uh, what I, what I've seen into his eyes. I don't know if, mm-hmm. if evangelicalism was a problem in Canada as it is in America, but like there is like this aspect of it that is so striking in this movie that I just, I couldn't, I, I just been in the back of my mind this entire time. 
with with him with that with that one shot <laughs> huh that is really interesting because traditionally Cronenberg isn't seen as interested in that like we don't really do cults we don't do a lot of right. re- of religious figures like he's a man of science or rather like his movies deal with men of science but there is an undercurrent of faith and kind of like believing in alternative things when the world starts to go to shit so i don't think you're completely off base and the reality is this again where this movie is set quebec definitely has stronger ties to catholicism and religion so i think you could very well be on to something i wasn't paying attention to it so i don't have anything further to contribute to it but the fact that you brought it up is really intriguing to me yeah because like i think part of it might be because uh we recently saw a movie called a thief in the night which is an evangelical christian film mm-hmm. and it is uh probably the most successful evangelical christian film ever made like millions of people have seen this across the world and there is mm-hmm. a moment where okay. the united nations sets up an emergency government and everyone has to have this this uh, number on them and they have to have like cards identifying them mm. as part of like this unite thing in order to get around town and that's kind of how they have to go through checkpoints with this this identification number and that movie was made in 1972 and it kind of influenced oh. a lot of this evangelical like fear of end times coming and so I just it's it's hard for me not to look at any movie in the 70s that has that kind of similar imagery mm-hmm. in it and not think that there must be something at play whether it's like he's just kind of tapping into that fear or whether it's like a a visual motif that he's just playing with or whether he's just kind of fucking around with it i don't know but there's definitely something there that just like again because i had watched a bunch of these movies for some bizarre (laughs) reason that's just like there in the back of my mind it's hard to not to not see that now well and you and i are kind of distinctly not religious folks so I sometimes feel like we're able to almost take that step back, like we're more removed from it so we can look at it a little bit more objectively. I was definitely focused more on the kind of bureaucracy Mm -hmm. of how how we systematize a pandemic or a medical crisis or a horror film where, you know, how we're going to deal with this is we're either going to shoot people when they jump on your car (laughs) (laughs) Or we're going to give you an identification card and you're going to have to like stand in a line and get approved at checkpoints and that kind of stuff. But I think when you move religion into that conversation, like, I don't know, as somebody who's not religious, I often think of how structured and persuasive and uh, indoctrinated religion is right like Mm -hmm. when you get communion you will do it in this way this is like there is a ritual and a proceeding to it that is not dissimilar to the way that governments try to systematize the masses right absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't know that rabbit has an interest in all of these things like in some ways this movie is I don't want to say a bit more slight, but it it feels like Cronenberg playing in the same sandbox as Shivers, but maybe still really trying to find himself. Like, yeah. we're about to come up on some of his all-time classic films. Like, this is the stepping stone between the messy, I don't know, vitalness of Shivers and then the more sort of polished, like, I'm really working through what I want to say stuff that's to come. And to me, Rabbit is like, it's solid. Like, I don't mind revisiting it. But it's, to me, just, it's not the perfection of early Cronenberg where he's still messy and weird. And to me, it it's that weird stepping stone between, like, his initial attempts at figuring out who exactly he is as a filmmaker and a creative. And then the stuff where you're like, oh, this is all-time shit. Like, nobody's doing it better than him. I think I know what you're saying, even though, um, again, my... My knowledge of Cronenberg is is relatively slight. I definitely feel as if this does feel like a transitionary movie for him, where he mm-hmm. is taking some of the things that he learned in Shivers, he's adding to it, he's kind of playing it. I, I think the camps, there's some camera tricks in this that I think are a little bit more inventive than anything that I remember seeing in Shivers. Like there mm-hmm. even just small things with the way that the camera and the very opening shot is um towards the the bottom of the the motorcycle and it's like zooming along the ground. There's a lot more movement in this. Mm-hmm. I think that he's playing with some things and I think he's learning 
uh, what he wants to explore, but I, I don't, I don't know. This one to me does not feel as exciting as Shivers was. I wasn't like, ooh, I could sit down and rewatch this movie again. Yeah. Even though there's some really great things going on in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like having watched it a couple of years ago, and then I think a couple of years before that, this was fine. Like I was happy to to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. But like I look at the films that are coming up in the yeah. future, like the next film is The Brood, which you and I have both seen mm-hmm. and is like fucking everything mm. and then we get into scanners video drum the dead zone and the fly oh. like we have good shit on the oh. horizon i can't wait <laughs> <laughs> but terry yes before we can talk about any of those we're gonna have to jump back to david lynch so we should probably close out here if people want to talk to you about rabid and your interesting theology issue with uh with the cards and all that kind of stuff how would they get a hold of you uh you will be able to find me on uh twitter as long Maybe. as it's still there <laughs> or instagram at gaily dreadful and joe if people want to um discuss the october crisis i don't know why someone will want to do that but if they do where can they find you on twitter (laughs) (laughs) i can be found at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and of course thank you as always to the anatomy of a screen pod squad network for hosting the show literally can't do it without you so uh yeah check out some of the other shows at this point, I have no idea what will be on the network because I don't know when these episodes are coming out. So it's all very fun and exciting. But Terry, I, yes. I listed all of these exciting Cronenberg films and it's like, no, we're not going to talk about that next because this is actually where the past, like the timelines between Cronenberg and Lynch really start to take off. So like Cronenberg is going to make a movie every couple of years and David Lynch will start making movies like every four to five years. (laughs) So uh, we're going to jump ahead to 1984 and talk about, oh, dear Lord, (laughs) we're up to Dune. The one David Lynch film before we started this that I have ever seen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And definitely his least representative. So this is going to be a weird conversation. I, I honestly cannot wait. (laughs) all right well until we come back for dune uh i guess that's the end for sexy and surreal maybe get your armpit checked out (laughs) (laughs) the anatomy of a scream pod squad